Hello and welcome to Hell No, a true crime podcast with your host, Lauren Lucio. A mother's worst nightmare occurs in 1997 when firefighters tell her that they were unable to recover her baby from a house fire, but the mother tells them her baby was never in the fire. For the next six years, she was determined her baby was still alive. Come hang out with me while I talk true crime. I will be covering two cases back to back in this episode. These cases are not related in any way except for two things, fire and missing children. 26-year-old Luz Cuevas was over the moon with delight in December of 1997. Her and her husband, Pedro Vera, had just had their third child, a sweet, beautiful, healthy baby girl they named Delamar. Luz was now a mother of two sons and one daughter. They lived in Philadelphia. They just brought home this gorgeous bundle of cuteness, just in time for baby's first Christmas. This should have been a very sweet and memorable year, but it was far from that after what happens next. On the 15th of December, Pedro is working on his cousin's car in the driveway. Luz is doing her thing. She gets the 10-day-old baby to sleep in the upstairs bedroom where the baby's crib is. She's cleaning and keeping up with making it, you know, keeping a tidy home. And I'd imagine she's puttering around, doing dishes, laundry, that kind of thing. Just a normal evening. Pedro's cousin comes into the home and is chatting away with Luz. And Luz is like, I got stuff to do. I'm busy. And she politely goes about her business. And Pedro's cousin just chills in the living room. Around 7 p.m., there's a big bang sound that comes from the upstairs, and very quickly, it appears there is a fire in the home. There is smoke and flames, and just all hell is breaking out. Basically, a mother's nightmare, because it appears the fire is coming from the baby's room. Luz is brave as fuck, and she runs up the stairs and into the baby's room, where she is met with heat and flames and smoke. And even though these flames are burning her face, literally burning her face, and the smoke is really thick, and she has no choice but to breathe it in, she is determined to save her baby. Eventually, she has to flee the fire because she will burn to death. The home is totally, like, the whole upstairs is just engulfed in flames and smoke, and it is a nightmare. She makes the heartbreaking decision to retreat outside, but she does manage to get her other two children out of the home. She runs outside, she saves her children, and she is screaming for help. By this time, neighbors are seeing what's going on, and one of the neighbors hears Luz screaming for help, and he heroically runs into the burning building to try to retrieve her baby but he is met with the same thing flames and smoke and this fire is just getting more and more angry and he can't get to the baby so he has to go back outside as well the fire department arrived very quickly and had the fire under control and put out within 15 minutes 14 to 15 minutes from the time the fire started to the time it was put out was well under an hour like even under a half hour and this is important to note so the home it was still standing it wasn't a pile of ash by any means but the upstairs was basically gutted from the fire this was this was a raging brutal fire the firefighters tell Luz you know we're sorry but your baby has perished but Luz 
She won't hear any of it. She tells them, no, no, my baby did not perish because she wasn't in her crib when I ran through the fire to save her. Luz was actually screaming that her baby had been stolen. So she was outside and she's screaming, my baby's been stolen, my baby's been stolen. The neighbor who ran into the burning home claimed he did hear a baby crying. So everyone just thinks Luz is not thinking right due to shock and the extreme trauma she has just faced. She's also burned and inhaled a lot of toxic smoke. So she's injured. Her face was burned. These flames touched her face. She got burned from trying to rescue her baby. The fire investigators, they don't produce any real solid proof of their claims. No bones, nothing. Just a pile of ashes they believed was once Delamar. And they tell Luz this. Luz is like, no way. No way. That's my baby's remains. She wasn't in her crib when I battled those flames. I couldn't find her. She wasn't there. And if she wasn't there, then that means she's still alive. And again, they chalk this up to shock and trauma. And perhaps her brain couldn't allow her to process this nightmare which was her reality at this time and they thought oh maybe later she'll come to terms with this no 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 no. she doesn't for the next six years she claims her baby was not in that fire and that her baby is still alive for the most part people were not believing her but that didn't stop her from thinking it though she knew her baby delamar was out there in the world somewhere she could feel that she knew it The fire was thought to have started from an electrical mishap involving a space heater and an electrical cord in Delamar's room. And since the home was so severely burned from the fire, investigators said it was totally possible to only recover ashes if the baby was in her crib at the time of the fire. To me, this didn't make much sense because just look at cremation. Even when a human body is cremated for an hour in a thousand degree heat, there are still fragments left and you would think fire investigators would know this. Maybe it was just seeming logical to them, so they put logic to this mystery. But it was hard to imagine that this baby just vanished into thin air when the fire broke out, so I don't know. Over the next six years, Luz and Pedro, they split up. Luz insisted their baby was still alive and Pedro did not share this theory. I could imagine this put a strain on their relationship. One day, there was a birthday party. This day was January 24th, 2004. It was a rather large family gathering, meaning extended family were there. It wasn't like a four or five person birthday party. This was a party. Like there was extended family. It was a big party. Lou, she attended this party. It was at this party, she sees a six-year-old little girl and she's watching this little girl and she's thinking, holy shit, that little girl, that little girl looks like me. When that little girl looks at Luz, it just sealed the deal. With one look, she knew it was her baby. She thought, oh my God, that's my missing baby. She didn't say anything to anyone at the party. Instead, she pulls a stealth move only a mother would think of. She goes over to the little girl and she tells her, Oh, hey, little girl, you got bubble gum in your hair. And don't worry, I can I can get that gum out easy peasy. You know, leave it to me. And the little girl was like, okay, cool. Like, get that gum out of my hair, strange lady. So Luz pretends to pull this gum out of the little girl's hair. But really, she was getting a hair sample for DNA testing. That's how sure she was this was her baby. For years, officials had been telling her that 
Delamar, her baby, had perished in the fire, but Luz never gave up hope. She never accepted it because she knew her baby was not in her crib when that fire broke out. She just knew it. Luz takes these hairs from little girl, says nothing to anybody, and leaves the party. Now she has these hairs, and she's not really sure how to turn these hairs into proof her baby is still alive. She ends up taking these hairs to a man named Angel Cruz. This man is a state representative, and Luz shows him the hair and tells him the backstory about everything. Angel thinks, well, this seems legit. Like, it seems, it seems far out and wild, but it seems legit. He really thought Luz was onto something. He believed her. He's like, well, what the hell? Let's do this. Let's get these hairs tested. And Angel, he, he sent the case and the hairs to a district attorney's office, and they opened up a case and tested the hair. The results for the hair came back, and that little girl that Luz was drawn to that day at the party was her baby. It was Delamar. It was her baby. She was right. A mother knows these things. All it took was one look. That's how strong a bond between a mother and her child is. That is such a beautiful and powerful bond. It's wild. For the last six years, everyone was telling her her baby was in that fire. The last time she saw her baby, Delamar was only 10 days old. And yet six years later, with one look in a single second, she knew that was her baby. And she was right. She was right. She never stopped looking until she found Delamar. And nothing would have ever stopped her until she did. But who had Delamar this entire time? Who brought this little girl to the party that day? Who done it? The answer to that is a woman named Carolyn Correa. This woman is Pedro's cousin. By cousin, I mean Pedro's uncle had married Carolyn's mother. Okay, so I guess, I don't know, was that a distant cousin or something? Every source I said said cousin, so I'm just going to go with that. So this is the woman whose car Pedro was fixing that day of the fire. This was the woman who was in their home as Luz went about her business. Carolyn snuck up the stairs and stole Delamar when Luz wasn't looking. She set that fire so she could get away and have the fire be a distraction, be an excuse for why the baby was gone, and burn all the evidence. Not only did Carolyn steal that baby from Luz, but she also burned their home down, then raised Delamar as her own child under a different name. This raises a lot more questions though. First, how the hell did she explain just having a baby one day when the day before she didn't? Weren't friends and family like, mm, where the heck did this baby come from? Carolyn, where'd this baby come from? <laughs> how did, how, how, what happened? So it is still very unclear as to how Carolyn smuggled Delamar out of the fire that day. One source said Carolyn told Luz she had forgotten her purse upstairs right before that fire broke out. So maybe that's when she snuck up the stairs, took the baby, started the fire. I don't know. Where would she even hide the baby? Like in her coat or something? I don't know. Anyway, she got away. What is clear is that she did take Delamar. And when she did, she brought the baby to her home, which was in New Jersey, over the state line, then renamed Delamar Aliyah Hernandez and raised Delamar along with her three other children, one of whom was a girl, by the way, together. She raised them all together. So Carolyn already had two boys and one girl. 
what was her need to steal any child, let alone a baby girl who was lo- loses who was Luz's only daughter? Over the years, Delamar grew up thinking Carolyn was her mother, and Carolyn put Delamar in beauty pageants and even commercials, which seems odd because that child was stolen, and it didn't seem like Carolyn was exactly trying to hide her in any way. I mean, who was going to suspect a little girl in a beauty beauty pageant is is stolen anyway? I guess, but. What about like a birth certificate? What about all that stuff? There is still a lot unclear here, but it is thought that Carolyn had told people she was pregnant months before she stole baby Delamar from Luz, which raises a few questions such as, was she lying about that and planning? Like, was this premeditated like months and months and months? Was she planning to steal this baby like was that her laying the groundwork to do this and then explain having a baby all of a sudden one day or was she actually pregnant and in a tragic turn of events lost the baby she was carrying but refused to accept it she was like no I will get myself another baby I guess we also have to ask the question if she really was pregnant and possibly did give birth to that baby at home because she tells people, oh yeah, I gave birth to this baby at home. That's how she explains that, I guess. And so maybe she actually did give birth to a baby at home and something happened to it, leading her to the idea to kidnap another baby. Then the question is, where's that baby? You know, if this did happen, you know, there should be two babies. Maybe one was stillborn and then the stolen one either way there's only one baby accounted for here family on both sides said they had suspicions in an article by cbs news on this i read that one of the family members said this quote we told them many times over the years that Aaliyah looked like their child and they should do something unquote and this was in reference to them having suspicions about what may have happened in telling Luz and Pedro what what they thought. But I guess nothing was ever done about it until Luz met Aaliyah, a.k.a. Delamar, at the party that day. This same family member explains how he felt they were caught in the middle, that they, you know, they were family on both sides. So they just left it up to Luz and Pedro to push for the truth and not just leave it up to police because I guess police weren't really doing anything about this. My guess is either the police didn't know of the suspicions, which I have to doubt, or didn't care to look into it. You know, I don't know. Or maybe they did, but not very intensely. Anyways, this same family member who was who was um, said those quotes that I just said a minute ago, uh, they also stated this, quote, they agree the child looked like them, and Pedro always thought it was his daughter, but nothing ever happened until now, unquote. I guess the family did have some doubts, though. So this shows us the family did have some doubts lingering in their minds that Carolyn stole Luz's baby. And nobody wanted to make the leap to actually openly accusing anybody of anything. Or perhaps they thought they, you know, they couldn't afford the legal battle, which that would have had to take place. I- I'm not really sure what happened happened there to be exact. I don't know. None of this was made particularly clear to me. But what I found interesting was Carolyn's previous rap sheet. She had a history of both theft and arson. In fact, in 1996, Carolyn pled guilty for arson. 1996, just one year before the fire happened at Luz and Pedro's home and Delamar went missing. 
Carolyn had worked at a medical office and she had been doing some dodgy business involving checks and stealing them from where she worked. (laughs) One day, that medical office burned down. So I guess she was caught. I don't know what was happening here. So she got caught or they were figuring out what was happening and she torched the place. Uh, What? (laughs) She torched the place to be like, oh no, the fire stole those checks and wrote on them and then cashed them and then got money. Damn fire. It's always doing stuff like that. (laughs) I don't know. I am not sure why she did that because police would be able to find out who stole the checks and cashed them and made money from them through other means not just from evidence in the medical office and police did and she was sentenced to five years probation which seems pretty lenient for check fraud and arson both of those things are very ballsy moves and I would expect anyone capable of that wouldn't really stop there especially after receiving no prison time for it at all After the evidence was given to police that Carolyn had Luz's stolen baby from six years ago, Carolyn was arrested and charged with kidnapping, arson, and concealing the whereabouts of a child. I'm surprised there wasn't like bringing a stolen child over state lines or something like that. I don't know. I I thought I would see something like that, but I didn't. When police went to arrest Carolyn, she must have caught wind this was going to happen because she ran out on her children and fled But she was only in hiding for a few days before turning herself in. So I'm not sure what that whole dramatic um, fleeing thing was all about. Carolyn says in court that Pedro gave the baby to her. Pedro was like, the fuck I did. And he was never linked to this or found guilty of anything. So police, they did not believe he helped set this up he they didn't believe he had anything to do with this nobody is really sure why carolyn would say this i'm assuming it was something her maybe her defense lawyer was like hey this is a good idea say this anyways her defense team's angle was not to deny she took the baby because that was pretty unarguable by this point but instead they claim she did it because she was suffering from a condition where she thought she was pregnant so i guess that's like what a pseudo pregnancy or something and they argued She actually thought this was her baby. What? Say that again? They they thought, she thought this was actually her baby. Huh? So she thinks she's pregnant, never gives birth, but claims Pedro gave her a baby one day. And she was like, oh yeah, I guess I gave birth and didn't notice. Cool. Let me put this totally legitimate baby in my coat and smuggle it out of a house that's on fire yeah this seems very legit this is what happens when everybody has a baby isn't it (laughs) like what the judge didn't buy this defense and found carolyn to be more manipulative than anything the judge was like no 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 there's nothing going on here she knew full well what she was doing now she's trying to manipulate everybody and the judge was like no i'm not having it carolyn pled no contest which again i was like "Mm, what the heck does that mean and according to freeadvice.com it means she's neither disputing or admitting to her crime so carolyn she was found guilty and sentenced to nine to 30 years in prison so let's just go back a minute Let's just go back a minute to the discovery of the stolen baby in 2004. I kind of skipped ahead here a little. It was proven that Delamar did not perish in the fire. 
And people are looking at the fire investigators like, what the hell? What the hell, man? You told this woman you found her baby's ashes in that home after the fire. And you didn't. You didn't. Those weren't baby's ashes. We got the baby. The baby's been alive this whole time. Fire investigators were like, oh, yeah. um, I guess that was wool. Uh, It can resemble baby's ashes. What? I'm sorry. What? Wool. Wool. Like wool. Yeah. Wool. Like wool. Like sheared from a sheep wool. Remember when I said the fire would have had to burn for an hour at a thousand degrees to do what they claimed it did? Well, that fire did not burn that hot or for that long. In March of 2004, Delamar was given back to her rightful mother. Luz and Pedro, they are split up by by this point, and that seemed to have its own problems involving custody, but the good thing was Luz had her baby back. It was initially decided that Delamar would now continue to go by Aaliyah, but this did change. I believe this changed somewhere along the way, and she did revert back to her birth name, Delamar. There was also a bit of a language barrier as Luz speaks mainly Spanish and Delamar spoke English, but mother and daughter, they were reunited and the love was there. There was no doubt about that. The love was there. They bonded quickly. Delamar even told reporters that she's home and she's happy. It was probably very confusing to the six-year-old and I don't think any amount of explaining would allow her to understand what was going on. But from what I read, she adjusted very quickly. Delamar, she must be around 25 years old today and I hope she's doing well. I really hope she's doing tremendous in life after, you know, having having had that traumatic event happen to her. I mean, that's got to be a tough thing to deal with. I, I couldn't imagine that. It's clear her mother loved her and continues to love her very, very much. Luz loves Delamar. Um, I mean, she searched for her. She never gave up. She knew her baby was out there. She just searched for her for so long, never gave up, got her back, fought for her as well, and pulled that really cool bubblegum trick, <laughs> which I love. In 2005, a year after finding their stolen child, Luz and Pedro, they file a lawsuit against the city because they believed the investigation into their stolen baby was handled poorly. Yes, I would agree with that as well. They are pointing out the medical examiner who said that, you know, that was their baby's ashes because by the way, a medical examiner jumped on board with the fire investigator and was like, yep, this wool clearly baby's remains. So they were like, okay, let's, let's warm up the old pointing finger. We're going to point at the medical examiner. What the hell, man? They're going to point at the fire investigators and say, what the hell, man? They're pointing at police and they're saying, what the hell, man? So I found, I, I did find the case text from this lawsuit. And after a whole lot of reading, I discovered that the court found that no violation of constitutional rights took place by the officials investigating. Therefore, the motion was granted to dismiss the claims, meaning Luz and Pedro lost their lawsuit and were granted nothing for the mistakes made that resulted in them losing six years with their daughter. This story is both heartbreaking and heartwarming. I have no idea how there's a story that's heartbreaking and heartwarming in true crime. This is just, yeah, it was just wild to see this, to feel these emotions 
while researching this. I was like, no. And then I was like, oh. And I was like, oh, okay. That's kind of new for my cases that I cover. I've never had this mixture of emotions. Um, heartbreaking because their baby was stolen. And that would have been horrific. But then heartwarming because Luz never gave up. And she found her baby. And she knew it was her baby from a single look. Just warms my warms my heart. I said at the beginning of this episode I was doing back-to-back cases and this next case is one of the most talked about unsolved mysteries in the true crime world. If you don't mind having your brain titillated then keep listening because this is very titillating titillating. I love that word. Okay. It takes place in 1945 on Christmas Eve. A house fire breaks out and five children go missing. No remains are found in the fire and yet the family are left with no answers and a few days later the children are declared dead with absolutely no proof. Hello and welcome to Hell Knows Double Feature. Come hang out with me while I tell you a mystery. December 24th, 1945, Fayetteville, West Virginia. George and Jenny Sauter have 10 children, ranging in ages from 2 to 22. One was not living with them anymore. He was off at war. Okay, we're in war times. We're in 1945. There's a war. He's at it. So they had 10 children, but only nine are living with them. George Sauter, the father... And I say the father because he also named one of his sons George as well. So I will have to clarify that when I speak of them. So George, the father, he had immigrated to America from Italy at the age of 13. His wife, Jenny, she was also Italian and she immigrated to America when she was young as well. George, he was a very hard worker from the moment he came to America. He was doing intensive labor and he was getting shit done. Then, like an entrepreneur, he started his own trucking business, which took off. And he and Jenny not only became parents, but around this time, he was making good money. And soon, they elevated in status to being this respected middle-class family. So this is like the classic, really good immigrant tale. Come to America, they work really hard. They flourish, they make money, they have a big family, and it's just everything seems like it's going good. They had a house, they had land, they had money, they had farm animals, they had electricity, and before you know it, they had 10 kids. I'm not sure, I say electricity because I'm not sure how common electricity was in 1945 in America, but I feel like that was mainly for the rich, but I could be wrong. Actually, I'm going to look that up. Hold on one second. Yep. Okay, wait, I just just looked that up and I read 90% of rural homes had electricity in 1945. So I guess not everyone had it, but most did. They were in that 90% of people that did have it. Where they lived, there were many Italian immigrants in, in this in this community, in this town. It was a very small town. Fayetteville, West Virginia, very small, loads of Italian immigrants. And some really did not like how George spoke about the Italian dictator, Benito Mussolini. George was against these totalitarian ways. And many around him in the community, I guess, were not. 
even after Mussolini was executed for basically being evil. If you haven't heard, Mussolini and Hitler, they were friends, okay? They were besties doing evil shit together. Ever heard of WW2, World War II? Well, Mussolini was all up in that. Mussolini was a fascist dictator, and if he suspected you were an anti-fascist, he would round you up and shoot you, along with everyone he suspected was like-minded to you. So he was evil, okay? Very evil. Fascism, bad, <laughs> okay? Fascism equals bad. Just remember that. I Or don't. You know, I'm not here to brainwash you. You have your own... You have your own values in life. Actually, when Mussolini was executed, the people of Italy strung up his body in the streets, spit on him, threw stones and rotten vegetables at him, kicked him. One lady shot his corpse five times in the head. Each bullet represented each son that she had lost because of Mussolini. That's how much he was hated. As they strung up his body, the townspeople yelled to hang him higher so they could see and chanted, string them up to the hooks like pigs. That's what they were chanting. Mussolini wasn't the only one who hung in the street that day. Other fascist members were also strung up and it was in the same place the same square in this town where Mussolini had once rounded up and shot anti-fascists now these anti-fascists were rounding up the fascists and um doing weird shit to their bodies so see what I mean like really really hated to the point that people he once ruled over desecrated his dead body for everyone to see and not only that but everyone wanted to see. Everybody wanted to throw a rotten tomato. Everybody wanted to get a kick in, a punch in. They wanted to chant and scream and hang his body high in the streets. It was, they hated him. He was hated. Hitler heard what had happened to his, his best friend, Benito Mussolini. He heard what the people did to their tyrannical fascist dictator in Italy. And he got scared because he knew what was coming for him. And he said, quote, this will never happen to me, unquote. And it didn't, because he drank poison. And I'm pretty sure only a handful of people saw his dead body, which is where the debate comes from, that Hitler didn't actually die and ended up in South America in hiding. So there's like a whole conspiracy theory thing about this. You know what? I'm, not, I'm just going to cross out conspiracy. There's a whole theory about this. And honestly, when you read into it, I don't know. Honestly, there wasn't many people that saw Hitler's body after he died. I don't know. Anyways, I am getting so far off track here. All that, all that stuff, that's for another episode. Maybe I'll cover that in another episode. Some people in Fayetteville, West Virginia, still stood by Benito Mussolini. So this was a, these were political differences here in this, in this Fayetteville um, because it was a large Italian community and some of these Italian members of the community were still fully supportive of Benito Mussolini so this was political differences and from what I understand it really made some people angry if you disagree with them about Benito Mussolini and I guess not everyone wanted to see Mussolini hung up in the streets and his body be desecrated. I, I guess that wasn't a everyone type of situation. All of that information should really tell you how intense 
this time in history was and why George Sauter talking about Mussolini in a bad way could result in extremism from those who don't share his ideology. So I really wanted to make that point because if I was like oh yeah he didn't like the Italian leader um and he lived in an Italian community in America you'd be like okay I don't really get it no this is crazy this was it yeah this was this was extreme differences just a few months before Christmas Eve that year a salesman came around selling insurance came to George and, and Jenny Sauter's home this insurance salesman knocks on the door knock 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 you want to buy insurance George and him get talking and George must have said something bad about Mussolini and this salesman was really into that tyrannical fascist leader and he was like well fuck you and guess what your house is going to burn down and your children are going to die and George was like get the hell out of here you fascist you don't scare me get the out of here and the salesman left and you know the salesman was really angry that George wasn't brainwashed and wouldn't agree with him that Benito Mussolini was a good person. <laughs> I guess. I wasn't there. Another guy came around one day and told George, hey, uh, your fuse box looks like it's going to start a fire. And George was confused because all his shit was up to date. His electrics were up to date. The electrical company had just been out there. Everything had been checked over. Everything had been looked at when he installed an electric stove so he just ignored this strange man giving him weird advice like how odd is that so just before Christmas that year one of George's sons was like hey dad I saw a weird car watching the house but again what could George do it's not like they had the ring cams he couldn't install a doorbell camera or watch his property pretty sure those didn't exist then I don't even have to google that they ring what are they called ring cameras definitely did not exist in 1945 this brings us to Christmas Eve 1945 George Jenny and the youngest daughter Sylvia who was two at the time they go to bed they go to bed in the same bed George Jr which is their son who was 16 at the time and John who was 22 at the time they are also in, in bed on the same floor of the home as as their parents and the two-year-old Jenny let the other kids stay up to play with some toys one of the daughters had bought for the younger kid it's Christmas Eve after all hold on let me just take a sip of my amaretto sour I'm just kidding it's not an amaretto sour although I do love I do love amaretto sours but that was not that was just ice water Okay, back to it. Okay, there was a condition though. They could stay up and play as long as Maurice and Louis were awake with them. That's the next two oldest sons. And Jenny asked that they take care of the livestock, turn the lights off, and close the curtains before falling asleep. And they said, hell yeah, mom, no worries. We got this. Like, we're responsible. We're the next oldest sons. Let us handle this. Just, and the kids were, they're all going to go play in the attic. I guess they sleep in the attic. They were going to go play in the attic. Away from the parents. It's all good. Just after midnight, Jenny is awoken by the phone ringing, so she rushes down to answer it. From what I gather, this is a two-story home with a basement and an attic. So the parents and the brothers, who all went to bed at the same time, they're sleeping on the second floor, and all the kids are were, like are sleeping in the attic where they're playing. So they're playing in the attic. They sleep up in the attic. That's like where, that's their whole thing. So Jenny, she answers this phone. So she has to run down the stairs, I guess, onto like the the 
where like the front door would be like the landing of the house the first story of the house not the basement um so she runs down she answers this phone and it's like this midnight mystery call and she answers it and it's a woman and the woman is like oops wrong number but Jenny can hear the woman and the woman must be calling from a bar or a party because there's laughing and glasses clinking heard in the background and the mystery woman even like gives this weird laugh like she's like ha 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 no I, I don't know how exactly the laugh was but I imagine it to be like I don't know sinister so the woman's like laughing into the phone saying she has the wrong number she can hear like glasses clink um jenny can hear glasses clinking it's like clearly a bar or party or something jenny thinks oh okay i've been drunk dialed and she just goes back to bed before she goes back to bed she notices um she notices she doesn't hear the kids playing but all the lights are still on in the home so she turns off the lights and she goes back to bed she also notices her daughter marion is asleep on the couch and she just you know leaves her alone so maybe marion was like i'm gonna go to sleep the kids are playing upstairs i think they all like shared a room up there so she crashes on the couch her mother just leaves her there a half hour after that midnight drunken dial that was apparently to the wrong number Jenny heard a loud noise and if you have ever had anything fall on your roof like a possum (laughs) I get possums fall on our roof all the time like a possum or I don't know like pine cones or something like that you will know what this sound is like it's a loud bang and it fills the whole house it can be pretty scary and that's what she heard but also with that loud bang it was like whatever had hit had then rolled off the roof like a bottle or something that's what I got from the description she thought that's weird but she didn't go look out the windows or anything like that a half hour after that loud sound she wakes up and the home is filling with smoke and she realizes holy shit the house is on fire she notices that the fire seems to be um there was I don't know if it was if she noticed it was had started in George's office or if it was also just coming from George's office, but there was flames in there. And she said it was coming from the telephone line in like a fuse box. The two sons who are sleeping on the the same floor as them, they wake up, and so does the father George. Uh, and Jenny has the the two year old daughter with them, Sylvia. So and Marion, she's on the couch downstairs. So they all make it out. They all make it out of the home. But before they leave the home, one of the brothers is yelling up the fiery staircase. He's yelling up the staircase, but he can't get up. There's a fire everywhere, like leading up into the attic where the, the kids are like playing and like where they sleep. And he's yelling at them to like wake up and get out of that house. But there's no luck. Nobody responds back. He can't get through the flames and they all retreat outside. George, the father, is frantically trying to save the rest of his family. He believes there are five children still trapped in the home. He punches out a window. He cuts his arm. There's blood everywhere. He gets back into the home. He's trying to find a way up there to save them. But, you know, the fire has just spread. It is just crazy at this point. There's no way to get up into the attic. So he goes back outside. He goes to look for this ladder that is normally in the same spot all the time and his plan was to pull one of the trucks up he had two trucks that he used for his business pulls one he was going to pull one of the trucks up to the home put the ladder on the back of the truck and climb up to the attic from the outside of the house and pull his children out but the ladder that is always there it's gone 
and both of his trucks are no longer working. Even though up until that night, there was nothing wrong with them. They had previously worked. This was crazy. So his last idea was to put some water on the fire. This must have been his desperate attempt. Like he was like desperate at this point. So he gets a bucket and he runs over to these barrels that they they store water in, probably rainwater. And he goes to dip the bucket in, but guess what? It's frozen. It's frozen. It's frozen solid. The ladder's not there. The water's frozen. His truck's not working he's punched this window and tried to get up to the attic they've yelled their like voices are like raw from screaming and yelling for their children to get out of the house it was chaos pure fucking chaos but he was helpless he couldn't do anything he couldn't get back into that home during this entire time though they never heard anyone screaming inside the home nobody they didn't hear anybody Marion, the daughter who was sleeping on the couch, who got out of the home, she runs over to the neighbor's house to call police because apparently, I don't know if one of the rooms wasn't on fire or or what, but apparently Jenny had tried to call police from their house, but their phone lines weren't working. Remember that. Their phone lines weren't working. So Marion goes over to the neighbors and she's like, help us, our house is on fire. There's people trapped inside. This is crazy. And they're like, yeah, use our phone. Like, call the fire people. So Marion, she calls the fire people. There's no answer. The neighbor was like, okay, I'm going to drive the three kilometers to town and I'm going to get the damn fireman out of bed. And that's exactly what the neighbor did. But still, it took hours and hours and hours for any help to arrive. 8 a.m. Christmas Day. It's got to be about seven hours since that fire broke out. The Sauter family home is completely brought down by fire the sun has risen and the remaining families stand outside their once happy beautiful home and that is when the fire department finally arrived there was nothing left it was all gone everything was ash remaining was the basement so houses that are have a basement those basements are like literally dug into the ground they're like carved into the earth so that basement was obviously there because it was carved into the earth that's it. Just a hole in the ground and a lot of ash with random household items that didn't burn in the fire. Along with having to look at their life go up in smoke, they were convinced five of their children perished in that fire. But when the ashes were dug through, not a single bone was found. Nothing. Literally no human remains not one jawbone, not one femur, not one tooth, nothing, no bones, no human remains. The fire was investigated and they said it was caused by electrics and that the five children who were trapped inside must have died, must have died in the fire. And Jenny was like, okay, well, show me my children's bones. I know not everything burned because here's some shit from the kitchen in the ash that never totally burned. But nobody would listen to her. And the five children were declared dead just a few days later, before the new year, before January 1st. Jenny, she wasn't accepting this. She starts doing her own research into fire and cremation. She gathers up animal bones and she does her own experiments on them. She's burning them. She is just doing all these things. And she's finding that they are not totally turning into ash. Not once did they ever fully cremate 
She's talking to people who cremate bodies. She's talking to people who specialize in this. She's working out temperatures and cremation time, and she's comparing it to the house fire, and nothing is adding up. George and Jenny, they go full PI trying to figure out where their kids are, and if their remains aren't in the fire, then where are they? George, he gets a bulldozer and he fills in his basement with dirt to preserve the site and all the evidence because he knows someone's messing with them. So he wants to bury this shit so he can come back and dig it up later to find things. A guy who works on the telephone line says, hey, Jenny and George, um, your phone lines, they've been cut, not burned. Like your phone lines were cut the night of the fire. It- it's not from being burned. And remember, Jenny tried to call the fire department and their phones weren't working. And that's really odd because the phone was working when Jenny answered that midnight call by that woman who was laughing and people were all laughing and drinking in the background. The woman who called that had the wrong number. So we know that that phone was working at 1230. And then after she gets that phone call, their phone lines get cut. That's weird. They also find remains from a napalm bomb in their yard in front of their burned down home. And Jenny thinks, well, what the hell? This could have been what I heard hitting the roof. It's a fucking bomb. I heard something hit the roof and then roll off. And then all of a sudden my house is on fire. And now I'm finding this napalm bomb. The investigator claims it was an electrical fire. They're like, what are you talking about, napalm bomb? Get out of here with your wacky theories. But Jenny, she remembers seeing a light on. So the investigators, they claim, no, this is an electrical fire. Jenny's like, well, when I was rushing out of the home, when it was going up in flames, I saw a light on in one of the rooms. So how could this be an electrical fire if the lights were still working when we were running out of the house? Reports came in that the five missing children were seen after the fire. Multiple reports, actually. One was a woman who said she saw the children in a car around the time of the fire. Like, when the house was burning down, she saw five kids in a car. Um, So how could they be in that house if this woman's saying she saw them in a car? Another woman who was a waitress, she said she saw them the day after the fire. She worked at a diner 50 miles away and she even served them food. They went there for breakfast and she served them breakfast. And she mentions Florida license plates. So remember that. Another woman who worked for a hotel said she saw them a week later. I think she said she only saw four, four out of the five of the kids. But they were with two Italian men and two Italian women. And these four out of the five children, they looked like the missing solder children. It was, and this was a week after the fire. Um, the men who were with, with these kids, the two Italian men, uh, they were not nice. And they did not want the children talking. This woman apparently tried to like talk to them. And the Italian men yelled something in Italian and everybody shut up. And nobody would talk to them or look at them after that. And guess what? They had Florida license plates. So George and Jenny Sauter, they want help to locate their children. They believe their children are still alive, but nobody is helping them. Not even the president of the United States, J. Edgar Hoover, who George personally wrote to for help. J. Edgar Hoover was like, nah, I can't help you. This isn't my situation. Also, I did try, but the local authorities, meaning the Fayetteville 
police officers and fire investigators, they won't work with my agents. Apparently, the Fayetteville police and fire officials actually declined the help of the president's agents. Wouldn't this raise some flags to the president? I mean, at at this time, J. Edgar Hoover should have been like, why don't those officials want my help? Like, what are they hiding? Or like, what's going on over there? But I don't know. I don't know what happened with that. George and Jenny are thinking, okay, whatever. That's not going to work. Let's hire a private investigator. And they do. And his name is Cece Tinsley, which I love. That is a classic name for a PI in the 40s. Like Cece Tinsley. I love that. So Cece Tinsley, he comes back to George and Jenny and he tells them, whoa, you are never going to believe what I found. I just found out some shit, you guys. And they were like, what, Cece Tinsley? What did you find out? And he says that the insurance man that threatened to burn down their home and kill their children months earlier, do you remember that Benito Mussolini lover guy? Well, you know that guy. He actually works on the coroner's jury, the same jury that labeled your house fire to be an accident. Why is the coroner, what is a coroner jury? I don't know, but this is what he comes back and he tells them. Not only that, but word around the water cooler is that human remains were actually found in the ashes that were once your home. And it was found by the fire chief. The fire chief told people he found a heart, like a human heart, and he put it in a box and buried it around the side of the fire. So when Cece Tinsley learned that he went to the fire chief he went straight up to him and he told him show me where this heart is I know you're telling people you found a heart and I want to fucking see it show me where the heart is that you buried and the fire chief brought C.C. Tinsley to the spot he buried it and they dug it up inside the box was some kind of organ so C.C. Tinsley brought it to the funeral director in town this funeral director looked at it he poked it and he was like nah that is not a human heart what you have here is beef liver and it's raw it has never been anywhere near a burning house let alone inside one that has burned down so this beef liver had never been around a flame in its life why the hell would the fire chief do that like that is just very strange behavior the fire chief he explains his odd behavior and says he only did that so the solders would stop looking for their children and just believe that you know their children had burned in this fire and he makes it sound like he was trying to help them like come to terms with what had happened even if that's true why put it in a box and bury it how the how the hell would one of their children's hearts would one of their children's hearts end up in a box buried near the side of the fire? It is not common to find remains in ashes like that. That is crazy. Like, what? Someone please explain to me how that's going to look natural in any way. A couple years later, George is reading the newspaper and he sees a picture of a little girl and he believes that's his daughter. He's like, shit, that's Betty. Betty is one of the five children that he's been looking for. She was six years old when the house fire happened. And now he thinks he is seeing her in this paper and that she's in New York. He goes to New York to find Betty. And so he goes to find this family that he saw her with in this, in this paper. Um, and he tracks down this family and they were like, get the hell out of here. And they never let him see this little girl or talk to her and he believed that was his daughter but he had no choice and he had to go home 
George, he will not let this go. And in 1949, he unearths the site of the homestead to have it all re-examined by a pathologist. This is how sure they are that their children were not in this fire. They are dead set someone stole their children and burned their home to the ground. They just want to rule out maybe some lingering suspicions in the back of their mind or maybe some lingering doubts, you know? So this pathologist, he discovers some random things in the ashes such as a dictionary that wasn't totally burned the home went from flames to ash in 45 minutes so even if it burned at a thousand degrees it still couldn't cremate everything especially not bone bone would have been there then the pathologist he does find bone what the hell he finds pieces of vertebrae and they get sent off for testing turns out the vertebrae were most likely from the filler dirt that george used to fill the basement in because remember he was like i'm filling this all up so no one can fuck with this so we got a bunch of dirt from somewhere and he poured all this dirt on top of the site to like preserve it and they think that those vertebrae bones were in that dirt because those bones had no sign that they had ever been in a fire like ever they were not burned or charred not at all um and this that's crazy so this vertebrae it was human but it was not from a child the or the oldest child missing in the fire was only 14 and this vertebrae was from a 16 or 17 year old but no older than 22 and they could tell this by how the bones were forming the report stated it was possible but not probable not probable it was the vertebrae of a 14 and a half year old whose bones were these though like whose bones were they that was never answered like where did george get that dirt from and why is there children's bones in it i don't know it's just more mystery on mystery happening so many mysteries that was it though that was the only bones found in the ashes that were and these ashes they were meticulously gone through and that that was all they found these vertebrae bones that had never even been in a fire and nobody even knows who the hell bones they were so this only confirms george and jenny's suspicions that the children were not in the home when it burned down and they put up a giant billboard they're like yeah we're gonna billboard this and on the billboard it has the five missing children's faces and names on it they kept that billboard up for decades decades and they offered cash rewards for anyone who could help them find their children this was now the 1950s and the first reward was for five thousand dollars and then they upped the amount to ten thousand dollars and ten thousand dollars in the 1950s would have been a tremendous reward um let's actually have a look at the conversion okay so in the the, the, the 1950 in america ten thousand dollars in today's money would be worth over one hundred and twenty thousand dollar dues. <laughs> That's a massive reward. So this reward, this reward had people calling in tips, and George toured around America checking into every one of them, but he turned up nothing. Twenty freaking years go by. So the year is nineteen sixty eight. The world is evolving. A few years earlier, LSD was made illegal. Up until then, it wasn't actually. But at the beginning of the 1960s, a professor named Dr. Timothy Leary, he was like, hey, 
this stuff is awesome. This LSD stuff is really cool. Let's use it, everyone. And by 1965, the government was like, no, Timothy Leary is out here, like, telling everyone how cool acid is and, like, doing all kinds of weird tests on it. And it's not okay. And it's crazy. So we have to make this illegal. LSD, it has literally nothing to do with what I'm about to get into. Um, I just want to let you know where the world is at at this time. So LSD has just been made illegal. Actually, I might do an entire episode on LSD and Timothy Leary as well because it is very, very fascinating. So the year is 1968. <laughs> back, to, back to what I was originally talking about before I went on that little rant about Timothy Leary and LSD. So the year is 1968. The top song in America is Hey Jude by the Beatles. I just want to paint a picture here. Jenny Sauter. She checks the mail and she's like, what the fuck? WTF? I've got an anonymous letter and it's a picture of a man who kind of looks like my son. She flips the picture over and reads it and it reads, quote, Louis Sauter, I love brother Frankie, little boys, A90132 or 35, unquote. That's exactly what it reads. Lewis was one of the five missing children and was only 10 years old when that fire happened. This letter was apparently sent from Kentucky, uh, apparently from Lewis or someone who knew Lewis, but there was no exact address on it. As for whose brother Frankie, I'm not really sure because none of the surviving children and none of the missing children named were Frankie, so I don't know where that came from. Oh, unless it's like kind of like a veiled look into who took the children frankie it's a very italian name anyways okay that's my own theory kind of forming here unfortunately nothing else happened after that no other letters no tips nothing actually the Sauter family hired another pi not cc tinsley that's where they went wrong here so they hired this other pi to go track down where this letter came from in in kentucky and I believe they paid him like $5,000 or something to, to do this. And they never heard from him again. He just disappeared. He just disappeared. Never came back. Never heard from him. Never saw him again. What? Where did this guy go? Did he get too close to the truth? Was he a scammer? I don't know. He was never seen from again. And this was never explained. Later on in 1968, George Sauter dies, having never solved the mystery of his missing children. 21 years later in 1989, Jenny Sauter dies at the age of 85. But still, the mystery remains and people are still talking about this and still want answers. The two-year-old, Sylvia, who back in 1945 went to bed with her parents that night, she was now all grown up and she was the last remaining child. She had her own child at this point, and she named her child after her mother. She named her child Jenny. And this daughter keeps the story alive and is still hunting for information. Her daughter's daughter, Sylvia's daughter, is still looking for information on this. So now I'm going to go through the five missing Sauter children and their ages at the time of the house fire. So there was Betty, six years old. Jenny, named after her mother, was eight years old. Louis, 10 years old. Martha, 12 and Maurice 14. The surviving children that made it out of the house were Sylvia, who was two years old, George Jr., 16 years old, Marion, 17, and John, 22. From the time of the fire in 1945 to the time Jenny Sauter died in 1989, 
she always wore black. Always. This was symbolic to the mystery surrounding her missing children. After Jenny died, that's when the billboard came down. So she spent the whole rest of her fucking life searching for these children, wondering what happened to them, dressing all in black, mourning them, putting up billboards, just like no peace. She never had any peace after that night in 1945. And this billboard came down decades and decades later, only after she died. So what are some theories involving this case? Well, some people think it was local mafia that stole the children and burned down the home. After being stolen, they were either killed or spread out around the country with new identities. Or somebody even said there was like a, a source, like a, I'm not even going to say a source. It was like a theory that I read that the children were brought to Italy and then sold to an orphanage. And I was like, do orphanages buy children i thought they'd like took them in i didn't think children were bought by orphanages let's just say that so some people think that um yeah other people think maybe they just got scattered around the countries and were given new identities and they didn't contact their parents in fear of, of putting their family at risk like maybe someone was like if you contact your parents everyone will die i don't I, we don't know we don't know what happened so what do you think happened though to the missing solder children i've just given you all the all the stuff i could find I will post a pic on the Hell No True Crime podcast Instagram. Please let me know your theories in the comments. This is one of the craziest unsolved mysteries that never died. Never died. This happened in 1945. People are still obsessed with this. Obsessed with this. It's just wild. Um, I hope you liked the double feature. If you guys like the double feature episodes, let me know. Message me on Hell No True Crime Podcast on Instagram. You can do it in the comments. You can send me a, a private message. If you want, please um, email me at hellnopodcast. That's hellnopodcast at outlook.com. Email me if you have, oh yeah, like scary, spooky, paranormal stories. I'm still like taking in those. Anyways, so that concludes this week's double feature. I do just want to ask one thing from you right now. Just one thing. And that is if you're listening on Spotify, Apple Podcast, or any app that allows giving a five-star rating or a follow, please do that. It helps my little tiny podcast grow and it helps me to keep putting out episodes. That's all I got to say today. So that wraps it all up. Thanks for listening and see you next week.